Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today we have a little double feature for you. We're going to tell you about the cases of Sarah McDonald Ware and Cherry Bayhan. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Our first case we're going to tell you about today is Sarah McDonald Ware. Sarah McDonald Ware was from Bucksport, Maine. Well, she lived in Bucksport, Maine. She was originally actually from Krangnish Rear Village in Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. And I apologize, but I did not say that right. But that's where she was born and raised and eventually moved over to the States and was living in Bucksport, Maine. Her case actually comes from the 1890s. So a while ago. There is a little bit of revitalization in the research in her case because a little wooden box in an evidence vault at the Hancock County Superior Court clerks was found in 1982. Basically, her murder happened, you know, early on 1898. And there is a little bit of stuff that happens that I'll walk you guys through. And then it just went cold. And someone happened upon this crate, this evidence box in 1982 that had her skull in it and some of her possessions, including a brown leather handbag, two small purses, some coins, two rings in her green raincoat. Basically, in 1982, when they found her evidence box, nobody in the historical society around even knew of the case. And because of this, we start seeing some historians or locals looking into it. Uh, One of these was Emmerich Spooner, who worked at the Buck Memorial Library as a librarian. He, among some others, start digging into Sarah's life. As I mentioned, she grew up in Cape Breton Island and ended up coming over to Maine. And in Bucksport, she had met her husband, Edward Ware, and they ended up having three children, two of whom survived. They were married for a little while. It wasn't a great marriage, and they ended up separating. And this is when we can jump to September 17th, 1898. And at the time, Sarah was in her 50s, and she was just working odd jobs. Um, She was babysitting and cleaning houses, really taking on the kind of women's role that they would be playing as a single woman back at this time period. This first theory I'm going to kind of talk about comes from Emmerich Spooner, who was looking into the case. And so he comes up with this information that she was working these odd jobs and she would go around and collect money, her payments for doing these jobs. And last time she was seen was on September 17th, 1898. 
And it was two weeks before anybody even reported her missing, which I thought was really interesting since she had two kids. I'm not really sure what was going on there, but you know, this is a case that happened a long time ago. So there's just not a lot of documentation. Eventually she is reported missing and officials start looking around trying to find her. And on October 2nd, 1898 her body is discovered and she was found laying in a wooded area off of miles lane not too far from where she lives and she had been murdered with her head severely bashed in it was bad enough that one of the newspaper quotes was that they went to pick her up and her head literally fell off additionally her raincoat that i'd mentioned earlier was tucked under her head like a pillow which is interesting. They were pretty sure she had died a while ago because they actually found her because of the smell of her body as it was decomposing. And they believed that uh, she had been hit in the head with a hammer because of the size of hold that was present. That seems like a pretty violent crime. Were there any initial suspects? I mean, I know this was over 100 years ago, so things were probably handled a lot differently back then. Was there anything that pointed to anybody? It's... Interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of the suspicions are surrounding this guy named William Trewergy. And I'm just going to refer to him as William because I'll be honest, his last name is very hard for me to say. Apparently, William was one of the people that Sarah had worked for and he was kind of known to be a hothead. He owned a local store, so I'm guessing she worked as maybe like a cleaning lady for the store since she was doing those little small jobs around Apparently, she had left a friend's house on September 17th and was planning to stop briefly at the store to pick up some money from William. And as I mentioned, he was kind of known as not being the greatest guy around town. At some point when they were investigating her murder, they start looking into William and detectives find a bloody hammer engraved with the initials WTT, Williams initials, and a bloody tarp in his wagon. Somebody told the police that a man had paid William to move her body to the area where it was found. It's seeming pretty suspicious at this point that he was either the one that murdered her or he was at least somehow involved in disposing of her body. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, okay, let's say they're trying to claim he just ended up moving her body because he was paid. Why is there a bloody hammer with his initials and she was likely killed by a hit in the head with a hammer? You know, that just seems... Minor details. Minor details. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. But yes, it seems incredibly suspicious. Yeah. And, you know, something really unfortunate about this time, they're not practicing the same type of investigation or preservation of evidence as investigators do nowadays and I guess her body had been exhumed repeatedly and at some point in all of this the murder weapon actually went missing (laughs) and then there was witnesses who had had come forward and given some information I'm not sure exactly what it is and had recanted and they actually even though all this happens, they actually did put William on trial. And this occurred four years after Sarah's murder. However, again, all this stuff had happened and here's our reasonable doubt and he's actually acquitted. Another theory comes from a former Bucksport Enterprise publisher and editor named Sharon Bray. 
who also was digging into the case, who said that her maternal great-grandmother, who was alive at the time that Sarah died, had heard about the murder from another family member. And basically what they said was that Sarah would hang out with these prominent men and the night that she actually died, she was playing cards with a group of them and they drank a lot and they were kind of rowdy. And apparently from this source, they say that two of the men got in a fight and had picked up a bottle to attack one another and Sarah tried to intervene and ended up suffering from that fatal blow to her head. And then this is where... William comes in because the rich men paid William to move her body and keep quiet. Okay, but how was her head smashed in the rest of the way? Yeah. It seems like it would have come from a lot more than a bottle and then her hitting her head probably as she fell. Right. Well, and even at the time, they say they were pretty sure it was a hammer that had caused her death. So it's kind of hard to know, especially when it's so long ago and so much of it is hearsay with a few newspaper articles sprinkled in. But something... I thought was really nice to wrap all this up. You know, unfortunately, her murder is not solved. But when they discovered that her skull was still being held in evidence, they actually made efforts, some of the locals in the community, to make arrangements and have a graveside service where she was able to be buried and laid to rest with an actual gravestone. And this occurred in 1998. That was really nice. That they yeah. put in the effort to do that. Yeah, and you know, apparently when they found some newspaper articles from this happened, it was a really big murder that occurred in the town, and there's a lot of talk about it. But, you know, just over a time, it kind of got lost in the mix. And so it is really nice that they came together to finally put her to rest, even if they are not able to completely identify who the killer was. So the episode that I have for you guys is about eight-year-old Cherry Mahan who lived with her family in Winfield Township, Pennsylvania. It was reported that Cherry's biological father was not a part of her life for a couple different reasons, but the rumor was that her mom had actually gotten pregnant from being raped and didn't even really know who the father of Cherry was. So Leroy had stepped in and was helping to raise her. He came into her life just a few years after Cherry was born. At first, it was just Cherry and her mom, Janice. And when Cherry was a couple years old, Leroy did get married to Janice. And that's when they moved to Winfield Township and Leroy began working as a postal worker. On February 22nd, 1985, it was a normal day. Cherry had gone to school and around four o'clock in the afternoon, she was getting off the bus as she always did. And per the normal, there were three other students that got off at her bus stop. And she had to walk a little bit from the bus to where her family's house was, which was about 100 to 150 yards away. One of the other kids that had gotten off the bus with Cherry was being picked up in a van by her mother. And her name was Debbie Burke. And Debbie said, you know, I saw Cherry get off the bus as like she typically did. And she started walking towards the direction of home. Everything seemed totally fine. The children that had gotten off the bus at the same time as Cherry all got into Debbie's car because she was taking them home. And so Debbie had drove off. Cherry was just out there by herself walking alone. Debbie did say that she had seen a van parked behind her van when Cherry had gotten off the bus and Cherry would have had to walk past this van. 
but it wasn't one that she had noticed before. She So she waited to make sure that Cherry had gotten past that van and everything was fine. Every day that Cherry would get off the bus, Janice and Leroy would wait for her at the top of the hill so they could walk the rest of the way back to the house together. But they didn't see Cherry at first, so they kept waiting and waiting and she wasn't coming. Janice said that she was quoted saying that we heard the bus come and after five or ten minutes, Leroy said maybe she fell down. Should we go check? And so they went to go check on her and he couldn't find her anywhere. They went all the way to the bus stop and Cherry was nowhere between the bus stop and the house. So they immediately start searching everywhere and calling around asking, you know, if anybody's seen her, if she possibly got off the bus with somebody else, if anything. And that's when they find out from you know, Debbie and the the bus driver that she did get off at that stop. And Debbie had actually seen her start walking towards the direction of home. Pretty quickly, Janice and Leroy get really concerned because this is very unlike Cherry. So they contact police within an hour of Cherry getting off the bus. Children that were on the bus with Cherry that day were interviewed by police to see if they had seen anything suspicious. And they all said that they had seen a 1976 blue Dodge van that had been following the bus that day, which they hadn't seen before. How'd they know what year it was? You know what? That is a great question. I don't know if they described it. So And guess maybe like the detectives. There there were also like other witnesses that had seen this van. Okay. Like adult witnesses. I also believe it's the same van that Debbie had seen. So I think there were some adults that had kind of like come into this as well and been like, yeah, it was probably a 76 van. I just like love the idea of a bunch of like elementary school kids are like, oh, yeah, that's a 1976. 100%. Yeah. There's probably some kids out there that could. But yes, I, I there were adult witnesses that had also seen it. The kids that were on the bus had talked about how the van had a painting on the side of it. That was like a, they described it as a skiing scene with a mountain and then it had a, a, a person skiing on it. So it was a very noticeable van. Yeah, it seems like something you shouldn't be driving if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Yeah. So the adult witnesses that had seen the van also had said that they had seen a blue car following that van. So there was oh, okay. a blue van and a blue car following the bus, which suspicious. Cherry's picture was very quickly distributed and featured on milk cartons, as was done in the 80s. When she went missing, she was wearing a gray coat, a blue denim skirt, a white leotard, blue leg warmers, and beige boots. So they had this all distributed on milk cartons everywhere, trying to find Cherry. The only thing that the police could kind of go off of was some tire marks that had been left in the snow at the bottom of a hill. But... They didn't know who the driver of the van was. People that had seen the van weren't even able to mention if it was a male or a female driving the van. Like there was there was really nothing. Police did bring scent dogs out to try to pick up any sort of scent from Cherry to see if they could figure out where she had gone. And they were able to follow it for quite a ways. But then the scent dogs stopped right at the point where the blue van was sitting. Suspicious. There was no new leads for quite a while. So this company called Advo was actually, so they mailed postcards out to people and they still do, which probably heard of it, but they started mailing out postcards that said, 
have you seen me with a picture and information about Cherry on about her missing. And she was actually the first person, first missing child to be featured in this program. And it's still used to this day. This have you seen me? So there was an article that I had found from 2007 talking about it where they were going to start making the pictures of the missing children larger. They're going to put them in full color. They're going to be like on page four of this thing that gets mailed out before they apparently had been really small and like on like a back page and in black and white. The ADVO is actually a partner with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So they work together in getting this information out there. A quick note, this is not what happened. I will spoil it in Cherry's case so far, but as a direct result of the Have You Seen Me program in 2007, there were 144 missing children that had been recovered safely because of that. So it it was something that was working. Um, I don't know what the statistic is now. I I couldn't find anything more recent than 2007, but 144 is an amazing number since the first one being Cherry in 1985. Yeah, and I mean, too, like, back before media could so easily be shared electronically, I'm sure those were instrumental in getting the word out. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That was what they were relying on completely. Later on, witnesses come forward and say that over the next few days after Cherry had gone missing, they had seen a blue van in the New Kensington area traveling back to the Mount Pleasant area. And it was believed to be the van that had been seen around where Cherry had gone missing. Police obviously start searching with family and friends. They talk to Janice and Leroy. They were both given lie detector tests, but there was nothing that came about. And the case went cold. To this day, the van has never been found or spotted again. It is believed that the van was most likely repainted quickly after she had gone missing from, you know, a a bright blue van with this painting on the side, it would need to be painted quickly because that would be something that would be very easily noticeable. In 1994, police did question a man from Massachusetts who had been suspected of abducting and killing a child and then of attempting to abduct another child. But when they started looking into it further, he did have an alibi and they were able to rule him out of being involved in Cherry's case as he was in New York the day that she went missing. So if you remember, I had mentioned that Cherry's mother, Janice, reported to have been raped and that's how she got pregnant with Cherry. And so police didn't really believe the allegation. From what I understand, her that Janice didn't come forward about it when it had happened. And so she wasn't bringing it up until Cherry had gone missing. And so police were like, you waited this long, like it's not real. And they didn't believe the allegation. And so they never looked into finding her biological father. And never, as far as I know, they never even looked into him. Janice does believe that it was probably somebody connected to Cherry's father that was involved in her disappearance. In 1998, Cherry's family had her declared legally deceased. And the life insurance policy that they received for her, they actually donated it to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There was a car accident settlement that she had received at some point, And that had been put into a trust fund for her brother. So they did do some good things with the money that they received. On the 38th anniversary of her daughter's disappearance, Janice met with some psychics named Suzanne and Jean Vincent. And they met at the bus stop. And 
did some investigating and kind of talked to stuff. And what Suzanne said was, quote, we firmly believe from our readings today that two males are involved and these males are in the vicinity, probably of Butler County. We also feel we could pick up on a letter or initial of the first name, and we're definitely feeling there is a W connected to it, end quote. So that was just this year in 2023. They had gotten together with the psychics and the psychics had gone out there and kind of investigated. I haven't seen any updates or anything about Cherry's case or to see like if this had gone anywhere. But as far as I know, nothing's happened with it yet. So to this day, Cherry Mahan is still missing. Um, so when she went missing, she was eight years old, four foot two, 68 pounds. She was wearing a white leotard, a gray coat, a blue denim skirt, white stockings, blue leg warmers, beige soft ankle boots without heels and a brown cabbage patch earmuffs. She was also carrying a blue backpack with two straps and a cream colored top. And it was decorated with a blue and red heart. Like we said, it was believed that a bright blue or green 1976 Dodge van with a painting of a snow-capped mountain and a skier wearing red and yellow clothing was on both sides. She was a Caucasian female with brown hair, hazel eyes. She did have a dog bite scar on her left arm and her left arm had previously been broken below her left shoulder, but the injury had healed prior to this time. She has a cowlick on the right side of her hair. Her hair was slightly longer at the time of her disappearance in the photos that have been distributed and her ears were pierced. It's a lot of information, but like I said, she is still missing and it's been 38 years. So if anybody has any sort of information regarding her disappearance, you can contact the Pennsylvania State Police Department at 412-284-8100. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>